You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to Genesis 12. We'll be reading verses 1 through 9. Genesis 12 verses 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they ran out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on still toward the Negev. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning and pray, Father, that you would be pleased to bless us, bless our hearts and our souls with understanding, Lord, of your word, and open your word to our hearts, Lord, open our hearts to your word, not to satisfy any theological curiosity, not that that's important, Father, we do enjoy that. Father, the greater end would be to come to know you in your fullness through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ and to be changed in the likeness of your Son. And it's to those ends, Father, that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. This morning we come to a very exciting text, and I think, especially those of you who have been around really since we started studying way back in Genesis 3, that for the most part, uh, at least Genesis 3 through 11 have been dark, um, very dark, and uh, mindful of this, I've, you know, I've, I've constantly added, listen, whenever we, get a, whenever we come to a dark passage of Scripture, uh, grace is nearby. Uh, and I, I found myself saying that over and over again. Why? Because there were so many, it's not that there's no grace, of course there's grace, uh, but um, it's dark, isn't it? And here we come to Genesis 12, and all of a sudden, this bright ray of light. I mean, it just bursts forth. Uh, this bright ray of life. And here we see that the, the gospel of Genesis 3.15 is beginning to be fleshed out a little bit here. And we'll see this more and more as we go. I mean, here we see God calling sinners. We see God's electing grace in this passage. We see... God's gift of faith in action. Uh, we see all of these things in 
Genesis 12. And this morning, what I want to do is kind of briefly cover these subjects, kind of covering them one by one as we encounter them. We can't say everything that could be said about this, but really kind of standing back and and uh, just briefly uh, touching on each thing that we find. And the first thing that I want to point to your attention here is the Lord's intervention. Uh, the Lord's intervention. Our text doesn't tell us that Abram was, you know, out in Mesopotamia somewhere saying, oh, Lord, please come to me. Please, Lord, call me. Please, Lord, send me. We don't find Abram doing anything like that, do we? No. No. In fact, the verses leading up to this intervention illustrate that it's God working. It's actually God taking the initiative. If you really, sometimes the chapter divisions mess us all up. And this is one of those cases. The chapter division is really, it's a mess right here. I think at the very least it should start at verse 26, but I'd like to even go back to verse 10 of chapter 11 to really see how this gets set up. Because when we go there, we see the words, these are the generations. You know that little phrase that I've been pulling your attention to as we've been going along. What does that mean? Moses, the author of Genesis, is setting us up that new, there, there's, there's a new section ahead whenever we encounter this. We encounter this twice in the passages that I've just mentioned. He says, these are the generations of Shem. And we read these lists uh, of names uh, that we may be tempted to skip over. And I hope that by now, some of these genealogies are seeing, wow, there's really a message in these genealogies. And as you're reading them, you're starting to see the light that's in the genealogies. I really hope and pray that we'll see that here this morning, the light that's in this genealogy. You know, Noah has three sons. One of his sons' name is Shem. And it starts with Shem. And from Shem, we go to Arphaxad. From Arphaxad, we go to Shelah. And from Shelah, we go to Eber in verse 14. Now, Eber is important. Does anybody remember? I brought this to your attention in an earlier message. Do you remember Eber? I said Eber is easy to remember because just think of the Eberus. Do you remember that? I think I shared that here. I know I shared it over at the first EP. I think I, Donald's saying I did, so I did. Uh, the Eberus. What does that sound like? Someone be saying, well, it kind of sounds like Hebrews. Yes. This is the father of the Hebrews. Eber is the father of the Hebrews. And from Eber, we go to Peleg, to Reu, to Sirag, to Nahor, and then to Terah in verse 24. And then when we get to verse 26, we're introduced to Abram. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Then something important takes place in verse 27. What is that? Well, these are the generations. You see that phrase again? These are the generations. Now, um, uh, we look at, um, when we kind of stand back, and if you will, if we kind of zero back from this, what do we see happening here? Well, we see in, in the flood narrative, which we studied, uh, the whole earth has been destroyed, save Noah and his family. Noah has three sons. So the propagation of the entire human, human race, and there's only one human race we've determined from this, right? We're all clear on that. Um, you'll get pushback on that as you share that. Trust me on that. As we talk about all these races, well, every one of us has a common ancestor. His name's Noah. We all come from Noah. 
There's one human race. We all come from Noah. We're descendants of Noah. So there's a focal point. And Noah kind of becomes a second Adam, if you will. Because it's from Noah that all of the human race begins to propagate. We have Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then we have in, in, in chapter 10, we had the, the table of nations, if you will, the nations that, you know, kind of a history of the nations which we looked at uh, last time. And now, of course, that was a couple of times ago. And, and now what's happening is from the table of nations, we're starting to see that the focus begin to funnel inward, if you will, funneling inward to one particular family, in fact, funneling inward to one particular person, namely Abram, the son of Terah. In verse 28, we're told that Haran, Abram's brother, died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. This would be a lot easier for us to get if it said something like in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, or somewhere where we could recognize him. We could say, okay, I've been there before. Ur of the Chaldeans. What is Ur of the Chaldeans? Well, in short, it's Babylon. And we've been studying Babylon, haven't we? Last time we studied Babylon. What is Babylon? Babylon is emblematic in Scripture of self-glorification, of self-sufficiency, of man-centeredness, of godlessness, of materialism, of all of these aspects and facets of worldliness. It's in Ur of the Chaldeans. It's in Babylon that Abram is called. In verse 29, Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now, we need to realize something here. When uh, Lots of things could be said about the lives of these individuals. All kinds of things could be said about any one of our lives. But when the author, when Moses himself, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens these words, he's doing so in a way that is quite selective. We need to understand that. It's selective. And verse 30 is an important detail. There we're told that Sarai, Abram's wife, was unable to have children. Notice the way Moses says it. He says, now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now this is one of those sentences where your English teacher would get her red pen out and say, now this, this is redundant. Scratch one of these. If you're going to say that she is barren, you do not need to say that she has no child. But what we need to understand about this ancient literature is there's no red pen here. Moses is doing this intentionally. The Holy Spirit is doing this intentionally. Why do we have this detail being repeated? It's for emphasis. And we're going to see that Sarai and Abram's childless state will play a very significant role in the upcoming narrative. We're being alerted to that already uh, in verse 30 of chapter 11. That's why I say it belongs here. It belongs to this whole thing. And again, we have another selective detail in verse 31. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So we see the family has pulled up its tent in Babylon and has traveled to Haran, and they settled there. We're probably not going to have time to talk about that this much this morning. I got like nine pages of notes here I want to get through, and it'll become too long. 
But next week, I hope, Lord willing, to be able to talk about that important detail right there. Uh, but in short, Noah, uh, Nehemiah rather summarizes all that I've said here. In chapter 9, verse 7, he says, You are the God, the God who chose Abram. The God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. So the point I want to make here is we see God's intervention. He goes into Babylon of all places and he chooses a man named Abram. But this is not accidental. It's not that God said one day, you know, well, let's go to Babylon and let's grab somebody. That's not what happens at all. We see that this whole, the whole genealogy, there's, there's, there's been this plan, you see, uh, that we see quite clearly here. And this intervention is radical. If you look at chapter 12, verse 1, which we read just a few minutes ago, uh, we read the words, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. Um, and you'll notice in this intervention in Abram's life, the Lord gives him a command. He commands him to do what? Commands him to go. And he is to separate himself, and this separation is quite radical, isn't it? It's very radical. He's to leave his country, his kindred, and his father's house. And I think you'll agree there's, there's a certain intensity there, isn't there? I mean, he is to leave, you know, Abram's country, at least at this point, his country is Haran. Tehran, but Abram has spent much of his life in Babylon. There's an old saying that you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. We've heard that saying before. Well, Abram's family moves to Haran from Babylon, and there's no doubt they're bringing a lot of Babylon to Haran. There's no doubt about that. Um. Let me flesh this out a bit. I mean, speaking to the people of Israel, Joshua says in Joshua 24, verse 2, he, he says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, and the father of Abram, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. They're serving other gods. They're serving false gods. So it's not like God looked down and said, well, here's some really great guys that serve me, and they're they're doing everything they can to serve me. That's not what's going on at all. There's nothing in these individuals that God should have chosen them. Just like there's nothing in us that God should have chosen us. See? That's powerful. That's humbling. So here's a family that's richly steeped in idolatry, richly steeped in worshiping false gods, and Abram's to leave this country. And that leads to a second level of intensity. Abram's to leave his kindred. That's his extended family, his aunts, his uncles, his cousins, his nephews, his nieces. You know, Abram's not going to be at the birthday party. He's not going to be there. He's, uh, what, why? Well, he, he's, he's cleared out in Canaan. He ain't going to build a... We're not even going to be able to get word to him. He's just going to be coming gone before he knows about it. You see, the, the level of intensity increases, but look at... It increases once more. He's to leave his father's house. This is about as intense as it gets. We're told that Abram's father passes away while they're in Haran, but Abram still is, still is his brother. I know how close I am to my brother. I don't want to leave my brother. It's about as intense as it, as it gets. So in short, what is Abram to do here? He's to forsake all to follow the Lord. That sounds really familiar, doesn't it? Now, where's Abram to go? The end of verse 1 of chapter 12 answers, Abram's to go to the land 
that the Lord will show him. We could say that Abram's called out from the visible and the familiar to the invisible and unfamiliar. We could say that Abram's being called out from the visible and the known to the unseen and unfamiliar. We could put it one more way. Abram is called to walk not by sight, but by trust in the living God. That's a scary prospect, isn't it? Especially when you're just getting started. And Abram is just getting started. So we see the Lord intervenes in Abram's life, choosing him out of the world, separating him, and the Lord calls Abram to forsake all and follow him. And the Lord makes a number of promises. Let me just mention them. We're not going to... I'm not, I'm not really going to go into detail on them because these promises are going to get fleshed out as we go along. Uh, but let's, let's look at them. Uh, we have three of them in verse 2. The Lord promises Abram, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And thirdly, you will be a blessing. We have those all in verse 2. In verse 3, we have, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. Verse 3, we have a second promise. In you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. 2 plus 3 equals 5. We have our sixth promise in verse 7. Look down there with me. There the Lord promises to your offspring, I'll give this land. To your offspring, I'll give this land. And the next dozen or so chapters are going to begin to flesh this out. But let me put it this way. The rest of the Bible is going to be about this. That's why I say uh, uh, this, this glorious burst of divine light shines for us in chapter 12 because what we're learning here gets fleshed out in the rest of the entire Bible. The rest of the entire Bible concerns these promises that are being made to Abram. Now, how does Abram respond to this? Verse 4, Abram went as the Lord had told him. Now, there's a number of things going on here with this simple act of trust. One, Abram is separating himself, isn't he? He's called to go. So in this case, um, he, 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 he forsakes all to follow God. I mean, he, his country where he'd become quite wealthy. I mean, if you look at verse 5, you see his great possessions. There's a large retinue that, that pulls out of Haran. So he, he, he leaves his country where he had undoubtedly established a name for himself, where he had undoubtedly established a reputation for himself. He, he leaves his kindred, his aunts, uncles, his cousins, his nieces, his nephews. He leaves his father's house and where his closest ties were. And so in the first we see Abram's faith is a faith that forsakes all to follow the Lord. The second, Abram places the Lord at his as his first priority. Secondly, the Lord is Abram's first priority. He forsakes everything for the Lord. His first priority is not his business. It's not his extended family. It's not his closest family. And we'll see in chapter 22, that really means not even his closest family, not even his very own son. The Lord is his first priority. And third, Abram embraces the Lord's promises. And these are not without difficulty. I mean, Moses 
had emphasized the impossibility of this already. I mean, the Lord promises Abram that he'll become a great nation. Okay, now, to become a great nation, you're going to have to have kids. You can't do that without kids. You've got to have kids. Abram is 75 years old. They don't have any kids. And the Lord comes along and says, you're going to be a great nation. You can almost hear Abram saying, what? 75 years old. That's not without its logical difficulty, is it? It's not without difficulty to the sense, to our senses. I mean, we, we think, there's, well, this, doesn't, this isn't the way it works. I mean, I should have started having kids when I was, you know, quite younger. I should have a whole slew of kids by now at age 75 if this is what the Lord wants to do. The Lord comes to him and says, no, you're, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. The Lord promises to make Abram's name great, but Abram's off to an unknown land where he's not going to be known. I mean, this is what pe people who are famous do this kind of stuff so no one recognizes them. They go off somewhere where no one knows who they are so they don't get noticed. Yes, you can see, the, you can see the, the irony in this. The Lord promises to bless all the families of the earth through Abram. It'd be hard to imagine how Abram could see all these details, at least at the start. But in spite of the difficulty that this places on Abram's logic and Abram's sense, and nevertheless, um, he believes the Lord. And he believes Him for two reasons. One, he believes the Lord's faithful. That He's, he's going to do what He says He's going to do because He's faithful. But he also believes the Lord's willing, or the Lord's able. So he believes that He's willing and he believes that He's able. I don't know how this is going to happen. Doesn't necessarily make sense to me, but the Lord said it. And he puts his trust in it. The fourth aspect of Abram's faith is that his faith produces worship. This is a real important aspect here. Abram's faith is a pedigree of faith that produces worship. Notice in verse 7, the Lord appears to Abram and proclaims the sixth promise to him. And in response to this, Abram builds an altar to the Lord, doesn't he? What's going on there? It's not only worship, it's public worship. You don't build altars in your closet. And if you do build an altar in your closet, don't set it on fire, okay? No fire in the closet. These types of altars don't get built in the closet. This is worship and it's public. Verse 8 tells us that from there Abram moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar of the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So we see twice. It's being emphasized. The, the, the faith of Abraham produces worship. Now, an application of all of this, it doesn't, I think, probably can see how we can apply this. I mean, what I'd like to do now is really kind of look at this, starting to look at this from a new, at least towards a new, a new Testament perspective. You know, each step of the way we, we see parallels, we hear things that are similar. Um, but before we do that, how could we summarize this? I think we could summarize this in a number of ways. We could say we have a conversion story here. If someone would say, you know, uh, if, 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 you know if, you, if we were all passed out exams and we say, okay, summarize... Uh, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 9, and someone wanted to say, well, it's the conversion of Abram. Fair enough. That's fair, isn't it? It's the conversion of Abram. Or someone could say, well, here we see God's sovereign choice and election, you know, the choice of Abram. That's good too. 
that's good too. Um, we could say it's an illustration of true saving faith. A faith that flees from the world to the Lord. A faith that makes the Lord its first priority. A faith that embraces the promises of the Lord. A faith that uh, worships. Yeah, yeah, that would be a good summary, wouldn't it? Um, but for our purposes this morning, what I'd like to do really is just take a few of these and really look at them from a New Testament perspective. I mean, first of all, Abram is called by God, isn't he? God intervenes in Abram's life. And the, the, you know, the, the circumstances require that Abram be called in a unique way. I mean, the circumstances just require that. And we might read that and say, well, this is great for Abraham, but how, do, how does this work today? How does this work for us? Well, listen, the Lord is still calling. He's calling every day. He's already called somebody today to himself. And someone might say, well, how does he call? He calls as the gospel is shared. There's no doubt somewhere in the world, maybe even somewhere here in the valley, was called by God today, already this morning, to become a believer, to become His. How does He do it? Shares the gospel. Shares the gospel. What's the gospel? Well, it speaks of Jesus' perfect life. It speaks of Jesus' willingness to lay down that life on the cross. Jesus' death to sufficiently justify us. Jesus' resurrection. All of those things. Jesus going in the place. Someone will hear that today, somewhere in the world. Undoubtedly, many will hear that today. But someone's going to hear that and respond because God is calling. He is calling and He's calling. He's calling every day. So whenever the Gospel is shared, the Lord is calling. I wrestled with a, a person this week very vigorously. Very vigorously I wrestled with him. And I made it clear to him, listen, I am wrestling for your soul. The Lord is calling you. How can I know that the Lord is calling him? Because I was sharing the gospel with him, pleading with him and begging with him to forsake his sin, to forsake his worldliness, and to come to Christ Jesus. I can assure you the Lord was calling him. How's he going to respond? I don't know. So far, not too good. One thing I made it clear to him was the rejection of the gospel. The rejection of the gospel meant the rejection of eternal life in Christ Jesus. I made that really clear to him. And that brings us to faith. It brings us to faith. We see what true saving faith looks like in this text so clearly. I mean, first, I mean, true saving faith forsakes all to follow Christ. That's what we said. That's what we see Abram doing, isn't it? What does Abram leave? He leaves his country. He leaves his kindred. He leaves his father's house. He forsakes it all. God says, go. Abram goes. With that in mind, listen to Jesus. Notice what He says in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. I mean, that, that, that's a shocking statement, first of all, isn't it? Anyone... If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That shocks us. One is the word hate in it. Wait a second. Lord, are you calling us to hate our closest 
our closest relatives. Now, we, we have to interpret this passage by placing it under the scrutiny of the rest of the Bible. And when we do that, Jesus calls us to love even our enemies. So he's not calling us to hate our closest relatives in the sense that we would think in a modern ear the word hate. That's not what's going on. But then what is going on? What Jesus is saying is we are to love him more than we love mother, father, brother, sister, children, even our own life. And, and, and listen, listen, loved ones, don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of that. Don't think that that's a betrayal of your closest loved ones. Don't be afraid of that. Why? Because of this reason. You want to be the best parent that you can be? You want to be the best father that you can be? The best mother that you can be? Love the Lord more than you love your children, and you will be the very best parent that you can be. You want to be the best brother or the best sister? Love the Lord more than you love your brother and sister, and you'll be. He'll make you into the best brother and sister you can be. You want to be the best son or daughter? Love the Lord more than you love your parents. And He'll transform you into the best son or daughter that you can be. Don't be afraid of that verse. It's not a negative verse. Oh, it sounds so radically negative. It's not. There's life in it from start to finish. But notice that Jesus says that we're to forsake even our own life. Even our own life. In another, in just a few chapters earlier, in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 26, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words and of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. Yes. <laughs> It's easy. I think it's easy to be tempted to act like these verses aren't in the New Testament, isn't it? Oh, those aren't. They're just not there. We're just going to forget about these verses. But these verses are there, and they're repeated numerous times, aren't they? It's because true saving faith forsakes everything. It's so much like its satanic counterfeits. True saving faith forsakes everything. And it, it, this is a hard word. Um, it, it, instead of saying, my will be done, we have, to, we have to say, Lord, your will be done. Your will be done. And we're not going to say that unless we believe that the very best thing is that God's will be done. See, You're not going to say that unless you believe that. It throws easy believism right out the window. Here we need to examine ourselves and ask ourselves, have we left the world? Have we left it? Have we in essence died to it? Or are we still living for self and still living for all the things that the world promises? Are we still caught up? Are we still caught up in that? Are we simply just trying to add Jesus to our lives without forsaking the things that are opposed to him? Do you realize how common that is? We'll just sprinkle a little Jesus on what we got going on here and everything's going to be good. No, it's not going to be good. That's mental assent. It's not saving faith. 
Secondly, related to the first, is that true saving faith makes God the priority in our lives. God through Christ is our number one priority. It's a number one priority with our time, our resources, our decision making. In short, God's Word governs our lives as best as we understand and as best as we can follow it. True saving faith places a principle in our lives where the answer to these questions are a progressive yes. It's a progressive yes. As we follow Him, hopefully we're following Him more closely than we were a number of years ago. So it's progressive. We recognize we're not doing any of this perfectly. But we're trying to. Because this principle, saving faith, God, by the operation of the Holy Spirit, puts this principle in our lives where that's what we're on about. That's what we're on about. And when we fail, it grieves the person who has true saving faith. We fail. We fail quite often. But the big distinction here isn't failure. The big distinction is here is that when we fail, it grieves us for a couple of reasons. One, it's the Holy Spirit's not going to just leave us like this. And two, Christ has won our hearts. How did He win our hearts? Because He opened up our eyes. He found us out in Babylon somewhere. You know, where were we at? We were out there hanging out with Abraham in Babylon. That's where we were at. And we weren't asking for Him. He came and grabbed us. He says, come here, I want to show you something. Oh, here, here's some new eyes so that you can see it. Oh, and about those ears. Oh, you're never going to hear unless I give you some ears. Here's some ears. And then we begin to see the beauty. You see, this is my son. His name is Jesus. He's the promised son. And he comes, you know, he, he lives that life that, you know, you can't live. It's, he lives that perfect life. Oh, well, well, well what's he going to do with that precious, perfect life? Well, he's going to take it to the cross. He's going to what? Oh, yeah, yeah, take it to the cross. That precious, perfect life? Yeah, it's, it's going to the cross. Why would he ever want to do that? Well, because justice is calling out for you. And it's calling out for me. And that's where I belong is on that cross. Jesus says, no, you can't go to that cross. You'll never get off of it. Jesus goes to the cross and endures that unimaginable agony. And into the grave he goes, and on the third day he rises from the dead. And in his resurrection we have life, don't we? Romans 6. We have life. And the, you see, once a person sees that and believes that, it's all new. It can't be the same anymore. It can only be the same if we don't believe it. It can only be the same if, we, if it hasn't affected us. It can only be the, but if you believe it, true saving faith puts that, writes that on our hearts and says, listen, every single breath that you are taking is a breath of grace that you don't deserve. That wins our hearts and that's the game changer, isn't it? And I can't wait to fall and we're going to study the ascension because the ascension's a... I want to go into it now, but I've got to wait. We're not going to have anything to do in the fall. I don't want to... But the ascension is a, 
big part of this that we don't ever talk about. So true saving faith forsakes everything for Jesus. How can it not? How can we not forsake everything for Jesus who has loved us so much? It makes Him our first priority. How can we not make Him our first priority? Third, it believes all to the promises. True saving faith embraces, believes God at His Word. I mean, there's, listen, it, we believe that God is both willing and able to do all that He promised. This is not a leap in the dark. Some people say, you know, it's a leap in the dark, you know, that, uh, you know, this is just, just you're being a fideist. I mean, this is a leap in the dark. No, it's not. Why? Why is it not? Because we got a long track record. Right here is God's resume. Check out the resume. And in this resume, you're going to find that there's perfect faithfulness and perfect power to accomplish everything that's promised. Not all of it's been fulfilled yet, but so much of it's been fulfilled that as we study these words, we see over and over again, oh, the Lord promised. Oh, there's the fulfillment. Oh, the Lord promised. It looked bad. How's he going to do it? Oh, but there's the fulfillment. And we see that over and over and over again. And that's how Paul can say, listen, faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ, you see. That's where it comes from. Systematic teaching, verse by verse. That's why I'm committed to this. This is where truth saving faith comes from. It's strengthened. It's weak, but it has to be strengthened. And, and as we come here and we invest this time and we invest this energy on Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, through the week, studying God's Word on our knees, our faith gets strengthened. Our faith gets strengthened. And God's promises. And lastly, God's faith that He gives us, true saving faith, it produces worship. Mental assent doesn't produce worship. Mental assent will, will, will say, you know, if all we're doing is mentally assenting, we'll say, yeah, yeah, I believe this, I believe this, I believe this, I believe this, but there won't be any worship because it hasn't moved our hearts. There's not going to be any worship. There'll be very little worship. But here we see Abram twice builds an altar to the living God. And there's a detail in verse 8 that I want to point your attention to. If you look at verse 8 there again, there he built an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. You see that? He called upon the name of the Lord. And some of you who have been around for this whole series will say, you know what, that sounds familiar. Yeah, it was in the end of Genesis 4 when people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's connected to public worship. You see? True saving faith produces worship both private and public. How can it not? Why can I say that? Because to worship is to believe. To not worship is to not believe. It's that simple. If you're a believer, you're worshiping. And quite frankly, all of us are worshiping something. It isn't a question as to whether we believe we worship or we don't worship. Everybody worships something. Somebody at all times we're worshiping and serving something. And what we worship and serve is what we believe is best for our happiness. To believe in Christ savingly is to believe that he is the pearl of great price. It's to believe that he is the one who bring us happiness, peace, and prosperity. So the heart sets its mind and eye and adoration upon God through Christ Jesus, both publicly and privately. It can. How can it not? One more point, and I'll conclude, and I saved the very best for last. 
This is the very best. This is the very best. It's been a temptation just to run to this. But I'm in the habit of asking this question. Where's Genesis 3.15? Now, I haven't asked that yet, have I? Where's Genesis 3.15? What is Genesis 3.15? For the benefit of those who haven't been through this whole thing. In Genesis 3.15, we have the first gospel promise. Promise of a son who will defeat Satan. Well, where's that promise here in, in Genesis 12, 1 through 9? Well, it's in many places, but I'll just leave you with one. We're told that in Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, how is that going to take place? Well, Abraham's going to have a son who has a son who has a son who has a son who has a son whose name is Jesus. And we get that in a genealogy in Matthew's gospel, don't we? Those genealogies that we skip, we don't want to skip them no more. So in Abraham, we're going to have Jesus, you see. You see the light that bursts forth? <laughs> and in Christ Jesus, how many different families do we have here this morning? We have a number of families this morning. We've all been blessed through Abram. You see, when you read Genesis 12, you're not just reading about some famous dead guy. Okay? You're reading about a, you're reading a, a, about a man whom God called, whom God brought in to his heart saved, brought him into his heaven. Abram is not dead. Abram is very alive and well with God the Father. And he is, in terms of human, in terms of Christ's humanity, he is Jesus' great-grandfather. How incredible is that? And through Jesus, every single one of us have been blessed. Amen. I've had a lot of trouble naming this sermon. Because every time I tried to name it, I thought, you know what? I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like that. I'll tell you what I named it. Here, the, it, the glorious rays of divine light burst forth. The glorious rays of divine light have burst forth. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these glorious rays of divine light. After all this darkness, we see the light. And oh, Father, we see that even though things always look bad, it was always, it was, it was always per your plan. You had a plan all the way through. We need not be anxious. We need not worry. There's so much application here, Father, that we, we could spend all day here on these verses. Oh, Father, we, we thank you and praise you. And we pray, Father, that this light would be used to empower us, Father. Empower our faith, O oh Lord, as we look at what true saving faith is and we see elements of it in our lives. We see, we certainly see failures, but let this empower us. Let this encourage us. Oh, Father, give us grace to forsake everything for you, to make you the number one priority, to embrace your promises and to worship you both privately and, and corporately, O oh Father. So much could be said we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.